This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Amazon has narrowed its uh, bid for its second headquarters down to 20. Uh, Only one Canadian city made the cut. It wasn't Hamilton. It was Toronto. But what does that mean for us, if anything? Let's bring in uh, Fred Eisenberger, mayor for the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Great to be with you, Scott. So your thoughts on the Amazon news? Surprised? (laughs) Uh, well, you know, not shocked. Uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, did know that we were, uh, you know, competing with a lot of other communities, especially a lot of American communities. So no surprise that uh, only one Canadian city uh, was selected out of the uh, 238 municipalities that put their oar in the water on this. Uh, you know, interesting that uh, Pittsburgh, uh, a city that uh, often is compared to uh, Hamilton uh, as a former steel city that's transforming itself about the same size, mid-sized city, was uh, was also picked. So I noticed that. That's that, kind of an yeah, I noticed that. That's pretty cool, uh, considering, the pa- considering the parallels. Uh, what is Pittsburgh doing? We've talked about this a couple of times. That's getting attention to everybody. Well, they're they're doing many of the same things that we're doing, and uh, we we've actually learned from one another. And their uh, their transformation, although they still have steel, they've converted a lot of the former steel lands into uh, you know other uh, commercial uh, residential uses. And uh, they're they're they've also got this uh, kind of cool mid-sized city vibe going on. That uh, that's an after effect of their kind of one one town one resource kind of steel industry that. Uh, They've also uh, still have, but uh, are transforming away from. So the similarities are quite, uh, quite uh, relatable, quite frankly. And you know, and Amazon did say that this was a very difficult decision. I would think that, uh, you know, Hamilton uh, would would be one of them that would have made it difficult. But having said that, Toronto, congratulations to them. Uh, you know, we we said all along that if it lands anywhere in, in Ontario, there's going to be benefit for the entire province of Ontario and. They uh, only being an hour down the road, and with our uh, you know ability to have an international airport, should they be chosen, uh, there will be spillover benefits to Hamilton, Kitchener, Waterloo, Niagara, you know, all the way around the GTA. So, uh, good for them to be part of that list, and uh, we'll see what uh, happens in the future. Did Toronto's bid include uh, sort of a southern Ontario feel to it? I believe it did. I mean, they were uh, they certainly made uh, Amazon aware of what the resources were around them. Exactly. It, uh, it certainly had that. I mean, I think they uh, they identified, uh, you know, resources all the way to Niagara, quite frankly, and the, and the nearness to the border and, you know, the nearness of uh, our, our international airport were, uh, were all issues that uh, were factored into their bid. So uh, <clears throat> it had a southern Ontario feel. And uh, we'll see we'll see what, uh, you know, what Amazon does with that. And, and no surprise that they would pick, you know, the largest city with, uh, you know, the greatest reach, mm-hmm. frankly, and make a greater Toronto-Hamilton Niagara area. So, um, you know, it's a positive step. What we've also said all along that uh, this wasn't all about Amazon. It was also about our future economic development drive and appealing to others and letting them know the assets that uh, exist here in Hamilton. So all the work that we put together uh, through this is going to be used for our continuing economic development drive. That's the way we positioned it uh, from the outset. And that's what we'll continue to build on so that uh, other assets and resources and other Amazon-like organizations can can see Hamilton in a favorable light as a possible investment opportunity. Do you think Hamiltonians are getting that, Fred? Uh, Example of a a Facebook post coming in here, a complete waste of time. We should uh, make our bid, including the financials, public now that we lost. That being said, I mean, we've known how much this is costing the city and, and how much others have contributed all along, have we not? 
Yeah, we we've been very uh, open and public about that. It's uh, it's been a fifty fifty split almost between uh, private sector uh, and other partners uh, contributing and the municipal city of Hamilton. We brought in a significant amount of expertise that uh, is required when you're doing this kind of a bid. Uh, I don't see it as a waste of time at all. It was uh, an invigorating process for our our uh, senior staff uh, and uh, and and the consultants that were part of this. It identified, I think, the assets that we have that we need to be proud of and continue to sell. And it led us to, uh, you know, I think a new moniker for the city that, uh, you know, we're on a different path and uh, we're very proud of where we are. We have the assets and resources to uh, to house a facility like Amazon. And we're going to build on that uh, unstoppable theme uh, to attract other uh, businesses and industries. And I think that uh, bodes well. As you all know, uh, you know, we have uh, 500 potential acres of uh, U.S. former U.S. steel lands or Stelco lands available, and uh, that's going to be a future resource <clears throat> Pardon me, that we're going to continue to build on, and uh, the, uh, the, the work that we've done through this unstoppable process is going to be coming very handy to attract other investors to uh, bring those uh, lands into future, future job-creating industrial commercial sites. Not to oversimplify this, but basically now you have a book, a presentation, a resume, if you will. Exactly, and uh, a well thought out and well well mapped out and well well dated uh, piece of information that we can lift from and uh, use, and uh, we're going to do exactly that, and uh, have already been doing it. In fact, and uh, you know we're we're just going to move forward from here and continue to uh, let people in the uh, kind of the broader world know that there are opportunities in this area, and uh, they need to consider Hamilton as an investment opportunity. What did this bid cost the city? Uh, it was a, a little short of uh, a half a million dollars. That uh, two hundred fifty thousand of it was uh, was paid for by the taxpayers of the city of Hamilton, and uh, the balance was uh, contributed by either a private sector or contributing uh, uh, municipalities that uh, also contributed some dollars, like Burlington and Niagara. Uh, Mayor, will you receive any feedback back from Amazon uh, talking about the bid, about your presentation? Anything that can help? I know that's a good. That's a good question, and uh, it's something I'm going to follow up on. I mean, it's early days yet. This has just been announced, but Mm. uh, I I don't know that they have the resources to to communicate with 230, or I guess at this point, 221 different uh, municipalities out there that that, uh, weren't successful. But I I think uh, we'll certainly take the opportunity to see if we can get some feedback from them to to understand uh, what assets they considered to be useful and uh, which ones they didn't deem to be, uh, you know, viable for their uh, their you know, future Amazon location. So we'll certainly explore that opportunity, and it would be great to get that feedback. Uh, with what we have now, the report, the presentation, what have you, how much work is needed to modify that for other scenarios? Uh, can you take this moving forward? Is it is it more of an information base than anything? What does what do we get for this? This is this is very adaptable economic development uh, tools that we can we can use. So. All the data that's been compiled, all the consultants' work that uh, did uh, actually very specific land assessments and uh, value assessments and use assessments are all valuable tools that uh, economic development can use going forward to attract other commercial and industrial uh, opportunities. So all of it is useful information. Uh, we have a great uh, great video, and uh, these days videos are uh, the tell, a, tell a fairly c- condensed and intense story. And that unstoppable video, video is, I think, uh, a very, very, uh, very attractive uh, way to uh, to send out to uh, potential investors to give them a sense of what Hamilton's about. 
And, uh, you know, as you can tell by the, the video, if you look at it one more time, uh, Hamilton uh, comes off as a very dynamic, uh, culturally diverse, and uh, engaged community that uh, would, is open for business. And so uh, I, I think that's an attractive tool that uh, can be used many, many times over to attract future investment. Uh, one more th- uh, thought on the building permits. Again, another great year. You must be happy. <clears throat> Yeah, it's uh, very positive news, especially that uh, that twenty uh, percent of that uh, building activity was in the commercial industrial sector. That's uh, particularly heartening. One of our greatest challenges is our commercial industrial tax base and future jobs, and, and so to, uh, to to know that that uh, sector of the uh, the developments uh, is growing is a very very positive sign indeed. Uh, the, the balance is uh, predominantly residential, and that's been the case for quite some time. But that uh, that seems to be morphing now to the a stronger commercial industrial investment base. So that's uh, that's positive news. Uh, any more feedback on the sign? Anything you can tell us about that? Uh, the sign is being built. I've uh, seen the uh, I've seen the work in progress. <clears throat> I anticipate that uh, March. End of March, early April, we will be uh, erecting that sign on the uh, City Hall forecourt, and uh, I think people are going to be very impressed with, uh, I think, a, a very, uh, very uh, dynamic and uh, animating piece of uh, public art that says uh, what Hamilton is really all about, which is uh, proud, of our, proud of our place, uh, proud of our opportunities, and uh, ready to move forward uh, in an unstoppable way. Very exciting. Well said. Mayor Fred Eisenberger <laughs> has been with us. Uh, Mayor, of course, City of Hamilton. Thank you, Fred, as always. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Let's continue with the discussion. Of course, Amazon narrowed its uh, bids for its second headquarters uh, down to 20. Uh, The only Canadian city to make the grade was uh, Toronto, as the mayor said. That's lots of spinoff stuff for all of southern Ontario. Let's bring in Chris Murray, city manager, city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Chris, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Uh, so your thoughts on the Ham- on the Amazon news or Amazon as we like to call it? Are you surprised? Yeah. Are you surprised? Uh, well, disappointed. Um, uh, but you know, I think as the mayor has pointed out, uh, the fact that Toronto is the only Canadian city that's still in the running, I think, is uh, uh, should be seen as a positive. I mean, Toronto is is obviously part of a very large economic region, and uh, you know, we are talking about a company that's bringing fifty thousand jobs. Uh, to one locale. So, um, you know, we uh, we look at that. I mean, we obviously, we, we go into anything to win, and we don't go in to uh, come in second or third. And uh, But, uh, you know, to your point, I think, as well, uh, we are going to compete aggressively to get jobs here. And uh, uh, I do think that there is a bit of a silver lining to this one in the sense that uh, Toronto is in the running and and uh, you know the premier through Ed Clark, I think, should be congratulated for uh, uh, supporting the bid in Toronto and uh, and, and keeping us, uh, I think, as a province in southern Ontario in the running. And again, I think we should almost be almost as excited for the reasons you've expressed. And I mean, and they used the region in selling their bid, didn't they? They did. And uh, you know, the other thing I would say is we were very interested in uh, looking at the effect of Amazon in Seattle. And uh, from an economic development standpoint, and in particular jobs, uh, there's a rather sizable multiplier effect, meaning that for every job Amazon creates, other jobs result. So I think the factor is somewhere in the order of about three or four to one. So 
um, you know, they're a very big player in the uh, in the Seattle economy, and I think if they're landed to Toronto, uh, as you point out, there was it was a regional bid. Um, we differentiate ourselves because, um, uh, you know, we are part of the Southern Ontario economy and the GTHA, as we like to call it. Um, we think that Hamilton does have something very uh, uh, important to offer, um, and you know, it's also I think worthwhile mentioning that our report I think has been. Uh, uh, downloaded over 80,000 times, and we've been using it to uh, lure other types of businesses here, and we'll continue to do so. Wow, you know, that has to be in- extremely encouraging when you know it's been viewed 80,000 times. Yeah, and, and that number is actually uh, is probably about uh, uh, three weeks old, so uh, I'll try and get a, a more accurate uh, for council. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we are, you know, uh, we're ambitious for a reason, and I think as our their uh, themed approach here is unstoppable. I mean, our economy is doing some really great things, and uh, but you know uh, we, we can't get enough jobs here in Hamilton, uh, good-paying jobs, and uh, you know for uh, Toronto being the only Canadian city to be on the list. Um, I also noticed that uh, you know when uh, Amazon made its decision, I think except for Texas, there's uh, every state that. Uh, uh, that is still in the running has one city identified. I think, uh, you know, for Toronto to be in the running is good. Uh, it makes a total sense to us that, uh, you know, the Southern Ontario education system, which the province, I think, uh, in, in wanting to go ahead with this, uh, said something really important. Regardless of Amazon, they are upping the amount of investment uh, in post-secondary institutions uh, to produce more you know, math and science and, uh, and technology and engineers. Uh, I think there's almost a $2 billion investment being made. So, um, you know, we are a tech giant in southern Ontario, and uh, that is going to continue. What do you say, Chris, to those that say it was a waste of money, the bid? You know what? Um, I, I think we knew coming into all of this that if we were to put our hat in the ring, uh, that, uh, you know, people are going to express a variety of opinions. Uh I absolutely understand what they're saying in terms of, uh, you know, that money could be spent doing other things. Um, I mean, that's true of, uh, of every tax dollar we collect here. And uh, we do have issues of poverty in this community. And, and uh, you know, council is making more investments in housing. And, uh, uh, you know, but we, we also know that you, you've got to build a robust economy. And uh, we're very fortunate to have you know, a fairly strong private sector and a very strong public sector here in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, we got to look after the people that need our help, but we also have to fuel the economy. And, uh, you know, in this this investment that was made, I mean, half of it did come from the taxpayers and the other half, uh, we sought out private uh, investors into the cost of this report. So, um, you know, we knew that all of it to be on the backs of the taxpayers uh, would be a real challenge, and so that's why we didn't uh, approach it that way. Chris Murray has been with us, City Manager, City of Hamilton. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Uh, Keep up the great work. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate this. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business has compiled its annual list of the most ridiculous examples of government red tape in Canada. These naysayers will love this crap. Uh, what made it on the list? How can we change things? How is small business coping 
with, of course, uh, the increase in minimum wage. 60% of Ontarians are in favor of it. Uh, Jody Morgan is with us, Vice President, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He's on the line with us now. Jody, thanks for taking the time to join us. Scott, if you didn't have people to complain about stuff, I mean, you would have a radio show for crying out loud. You should be thanking yeah. these people. You know, I see. I feel sorry for the people that are on hold, waiting. Geez, what do I want to? <laughs> what do I want to go on with this guy for, man? And now all of a sudden, it's let's talk about something. All right, you called me up to complain about stuff for crying out loud. <laughs> exactly. All right, yeah. uh, Jody. Let's talk about the Canadian. First of all, tell everybody what the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is. We are Canada's largest business association. We have uh, small and medium-sized businesses right across the country in every sector, 109,000 members uh, from coast to coast to coast, and we advocate on behalf of small and medium-sized businesses to government. We go and ask very nicely that they you know, do things that are going to help small and medium-sized businesses, and sometimes they listen to us, and other times they, uh, well, in the case of Ontario, don't and uh, go ahead and do things that are sometimes difficult to uh, manage. However, that you know, then we try and come up with suggestions to help governments either mitigate what they're doing or, uh, you know, perhaps do something to assist small businesses succeed. That's our job. Uh, so, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, minimum wage, an issue uh, for Ontarians. You're a Canadian organization. You look at this uh, from a national scope right across the country. Um, what is the feedback from other provinces on this? Is there a good way to do this? What have we learned here? Well, look, I, I can tell you one thing, Scott, is that, that you know we don't have a one single unified position for by every business owner on minimum wage. There are people who support uh, minimum wage increases in our membership, and there are people who vehemently oppose it. But what they uh, do take very, very seriously is that they, they want to see uh, sound public policy decisions put in place that are going to recognize the difficulties of doing business in this country. And uh, how this is done and what the objectives of uh, a public policy decision like raising minimum wage, I think, is the you know what we've got to bring into discussion. What is what is it that we're trying to achieve here? Are we trying to uh, elevate people out of poverty? Are we trying to improve the economy? Are we, what are we doing? You know, and what sort of impact is that having on youth employment? The thing about a big decision about raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars as it happened in Ontario is it's not there isn't one single outcome here. There are many, many outcomes. And a lot of business owners, I was listening to an interview you did with a university professor, I think McMaster, uh, not too long ago, talking about there are many small business owners that are having a great deal of difficulty accommodating this. You know, and they say, well, just raise prices. Well, sometimes it's not as easy as that. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing uh, running a small business. Not all businesses are profitable. Some are running on very thin margins. Some don't have the room to increase uh, prices, others, you know, they need to do. They can't simply just change hours. They they've got to eliminate positions. So it, there, there is not one simple answer here. But what I think the important thing is that we look at what it is we want to achieve out of this thing, and if this is the best policy lever to achieve that. And in many ways, we don't think that a, a you know a minimum wage increase is necessarily the best way to try to elevate people out of poverty. I think the government has some other things that it can do in terms of tax law and everything else is that it, it can do uh, to, I think, mitigate uh, the circumstances for low-income individuals. Uh, we certainly know that, that businesses, smaller businesses, uh, make up for the majority uh, or create the majority of jobs in the country, in the province. Do we take that for granted? Do we do as much as we can to help these businesses? 
Well, I think this is the reason that you know CFIB is in existence, is that the, the, it's such an important part of the economy, and they do need a voice at the government table because we need to remind governments that small businesses are such an important part of the economy that they provide the majority of the employment. I mean, we're, you're looking at you know the single most important part of the economy is the private sector small business component of it because that is the group of people who are generating wealth who are creating jobs who are doing the things in our communities that we think that are important who are contributing back to their communities in really meaningful ways and who are providing opportunities for both employees and themselves employ you know the employers themselves uh, to be successful so what we try to do is we try to make sure that governments understand that dynamic and that they're hearing the opinions of small and medium-sized businesses. And that's the way that we do this is we go out and we survey our members uh, very rigorously. We have, we have you know, very solid research methodologies that we use. We're out talking to our members all the time. We have people that go out and see them face-to-face every year. And I think that what we do is we re- reflect their reality back to government and hope that government responds in a, in a positive way. Uh, uh, recent information uh, and advocates will, will, will talk about this. Uh, over 60% of Ontarians are in favor of increasing the minimum wage. Doesn't is small business not on the same page? Don't they feel the same? What's the reaction uh, of small business to what Ontarians are wanting? Well, as I said, it's, it's not, you know, there, there are people, you know, Small business owners are a part of the community. They're not. They're they're a part of that makeup of people who agree and disagree with this. But I can tell you that if a small business owner is looking that this minimum wage increase is going to threaten their business, they're not going to agree with it. Uh, there are people who run small businesses who you know are quite willing and able to pay a fifteen dollar minimum wage, and they do that. Many of them before this uh, legislation was brought forward. I mean, it, it, so it's not. It's not a homogeneous group that we're talking about. What we do is we go out and we talk to them, and, and I mean, a vast majority of our members look at this and say, this is going to be an extraordinarily difficult thing for us to manage. So that's why we push back against it. Uh, are we against increasing minimum wage? No. I don't think that anybody in the, you know, any sensible person would say that you, you know, you, you've got to cap it and leave it there, but it's about how to absorb it. It's, it's how small businesses manage to absorb these increasing costs. Look, we have increasing costs in CPP, EI, uh, you know, the, the tax rate, thankfully the federal government has done something about that, but look, we've got, we've had a, a huge fight with the federal uh, tax folks over the past year talking about different ways that taxes are actually or the small business tax rate is actually applied how CRA is going to deal with this so there there are many many costs that business owners have to contend with um, you know as I say like there's workers comp and there's EI and there's CPP and there's, these are the payroll taxes and it's a cumulative effect of these additional costs that make it that much more difficult for small businesses to conduct their businesses. So, you know, we've got to reflect that back to government and say, be cognizant of this, because while you're trying to, you know, achieve one objective, on the other side of it, you know, okay, if this is the case, does this mean that youth employment is going to tank? Because a lot of employers are going to say, if I have to pay a $15 minimum wage, am I going to bring in uh, entry-level workers who are youth workers? And many of them are saying, no, if I'm going to pay that wage, I'm going to, I'm going to be looking for higher-skilled workers because there is an attachment of value to wage that doesn't seem to be part of the discussion in here either. Hmm. 
Uh, Wynn said uh, recently she saw this wage blowback coming. Uh, could she have done more? I mean, if you saw it coming, I compare a lot of this to the electricity file, you, you know, where she just kind of hit it and, and, and just hoped for the best and then uh, wondered why everybody complained when everything went through the roof. Uh, should she, uh, you know, obviously experts knew this was coming. Do you think there was more she could have done before? Well, you know, I, I'm not going to give political advice to a professional politician. I, I think that it, it, it's obvious, We, you know, from our position as the largest business association in Canada, we pushed back heavily against this up front saying you have to take a longer-term look at this and make it more manageable for people to be able to absorb these cost increases. They decided not to because... I think there are probably, and not to sound too cynical about this, there are probably some political advantages to doing so. Uh, they have a political constituency that I'm sure that this appeals to, and part of the political calculus around this leading up to an election would be we're going to do this now, and, and there are going to be people who agree and people who disagree. And if they'll look at the people who disagree and say, well, we can do without them, but the, you know, the other folks are the ones that we want to attract. So that's part of a polit- any political calculus that's being done, I would... I would uh, do you think we're guess. do you think we're going to go through this all again, uh, Jordy? When when uh, one year from now, when when the other uh, when the rest of this gets tacked on and it does go to fifteen, is this going to die down? Are we going to have this this brouhaha all over again? Well, I don't. I think the intensity of when you have a huge increase like we had up to fourteen bucks, I think that that you know people feel the impact of that. There's a there is a pain that goes along with that additional cost that people are going to have to adjust to. You know, we're going to continue to try and talk sense to the government around this and saying, you know, there's only so much that folks can absorb over a short period of time. It's it's not, as I said, Scott, it's not the increase in the minimum wage per se. It is the it, it's the spike. It's the it's the you know the profound hike. It's the trying to absorb the cost in a short period of time. That means that people have to really make some pretty significant adjustments. That is the problem with this. We've had minimum wage increases for the last, you know, well, since I was earning minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost 60. And, you know, but, but they have been incremental. This, is, this has been a spike. It's very difficult to absorb. You know, another thing that's not being taken into account here is we had a, I'm talking to you from Halifax. There was a protest here yesterday where some people were talking about, you know, some of the thinking behind this is, well, you know, we should be unionizing uh, entry-level workers, people who are working for minimum wage. That's who's driving this whole thing. I mean, this has been uh, driven principally and funded. The $15 fairness fight has been driven principally by labor because they're looking to uh, build up their memberships. And, And this is one tactic in a broader strategy around this that's being implemented, and some governments are buying into it. Uh, how concerned are you with uh, Canada's tax competitive, uh, competitiveness uh, now that Trump's in the White House and seems to be lowering business taxes through uh, uh, in neighboring states and such? How concerned are you uh, as uh, in small business about the uh, attractiveness of the U.S.? Well, I think everybody, the biggest concern right here, I mean, we, we have uh, a pretty good small business tax rate uh, at the level that it's at. It's always, you know, lower is always better, but uh, we're very, very competitive on a, on a global scale. I think the biggest concern right now is NAFTA and the uncertainty around that. You know, you've got a guy in the White House there that is, 
I think the word unpredictable is is probably not you know going too far. That there are concerns about what is going to happen around NAFTA, and this is where business owners get concerned is around unpredictability, and if uh, if they're going to be impacted by decisions that are coming out of the White House in terms of you know whatever the whatever the trade implications are, they would like to know about it. But there's, I think that that's really the big piece right now is just the uncertainty about what's going to happen. All right, what is Red Tape Awareness Week? <laughs> We've been doing this for almost a decade now. This is a, the ninth uh, Red Tape Awareness Week. It, it basically is there to point to some of the things that governments are doing that we think are bad and some of the things that are good. And there is a balance there as well. I mean, this is one of the things that CFIB does is we don't just sit and complain about things. Uh, We like to make suggestions on, you know, where uh, governments can make improvements and how they can make improvements, and we assist that way. So uh, what we do is we have, uh, you know, a few little kind of centerpieces. One is our paperweights, and that is that we identify some of the craziest or goofiest regulatory problems that we have in the country. Uh, the other thing is we also give away a Golden Scissors Award, is where we uh, recognize governments for the good things that they're doing in terms of regulatory reform and cutting red tape. And then another piece of it is our uh, red tape report card. And what we do is we rate the provinces and the federal government on how they're doing in terms of reg- uh, fixing red tape. Red tape is a the, one of the most single largest constraints on business. Uh, we've uh, valued it somewhere around $10 billion as part of an overall $36 billion regulatory bill that uh, business has to pay in this country. So we do the analysis and we uh, we try to I guess create a little bit of red tape literacy uh, across the country, and uh, it's it's about awareness of it as a problem, about what governments can do and what governments are not doing. And we just released our paperweights today, which is, I mean, it's it's pretty, they're they're funny in a very sad kind of way. Some of these regulations that businesses have to deal with, and and we try to point some of those out. So, for example. Uh, the Ontario Ministry of Labor has been uh, given a paperweight for uh, a rule that says that you have to get a new ladder, regardless of the condition of the ladder, if its sticker is worn out on the side of it. I mean, that's you know, you what, like a talking... safety stick, like a safety sticker, or yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, uh, uh, this is a business owner. You know, they, we take calls from our from our members. He's at a construction site. A Ministry of Labor inspector comes in, says he needs. A, he's using an illegal ladder. Needs a new ladder. He's going to get fined if he doesn't. So he goes out to the building supply store, gets a new one. It's identical to the one that he had. Turns out the ladder was in working, perfect working condition. The old one is that the two labels on the ladder had worn down, and he's told he can't just replace the labels. He has to buy a new ladder, hmm. which is like one hundred thirty to three hundred dollars. So those are the sorts of things that you look at. You go, really. Why, and, and, why is this such an issue if small business is such a big driver? Why are there so many hoops to jump for jump through? I mean, is they, I mean, I guess they'll say it's for our safety and and what have you standards. Yeah, but where do we draw the line here? Well, this is the thing. What we like to do is we like to say, you know, regulate. It's not that we are against regulation. Regulation is important. You need safety standards. You need to make sure that people are on safe ladders. You need to make sure that people have, you know, uh, fall restraint mechanisms so they're not falling off of buildings and whatnot. But you know, for example, you have different fall restraint legislation in all provinces. In different provinces have different fall restraint occupational health mm. and safety regulations. 
gravity works pretty much the same in every province in Canada. So why there, why there are all these different regulations around it? So we, we look to try and standardize these things to make it easier for businesses to do business between provinces. Uh, we, we try to identify the areas where regulation has you know, gone off the rails a little bit for one reason or another and, and maybe need to be, uh, you know, a little common mm. sense applied to it. Another good one was, you know, the sidewalk to nowhere. You know, Smithers, B.C., they got a paperweight for forcing a business owner to build a sidewalk. The sidewalk had no had a starting point and an end point that wasn't attached to anything, but they one of the laws or bylaws said that they had to build a sidewalk if they were going to do this renovation. So they built a sidewalk on the other side of the road. <laughs> it, it, it's it, 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 it. You wouldn't believe some of the things that that happen, and, and it, they're head scratchers. But we try to point that out and say, let's let's bring some semblance of sanity. All right, Jordy, uh, I'm going to have to let you go there. Jordy Morgan's been with the Vice President, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great talking to you, Scott. Take care, my man. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. What? What does he have to go for? What is? What's his problem? Uh, apparently, Scott's got to go, so we got to get him on fast. Where are you going? What's the big rush? You know, I got lunch to get to. <laughs> lunch. My grilled cheese is getting cold. It, it was already cold. It's getting warm now. It's getting room temperature. <laughs> hey, room temperature grilled cheese. That's not. That's not bad. It's not as good as uh, fridge cold grilled cheese. But you know, unless it's heck? brie, unless it's brie, then yes. it's got to be you know, wow. then soft and cool. Yeah. You're 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 digging on the high end grilled cheese. You hanging out with grilled cheese? What's with that? No, in fact, I don't have grilled cheese today. I just uh, no, I, anyway. I said gorilla cheese. That's oh, the, the well, food truck, you know the. the they rest. do great work. They do, they do great work. They, There's they, a lot of places in town that do great work. There are, as a matter of, and more and more on the horizon. I'm loving that. All Unfortunately, right. I am going to the gym these days, and so most of the places that I really love, um, you know, it's just self defeating. Yeah. But yep. Nonetheless, is that why you have to hurry with us? Because you got to go to the gym. No, that doesn't come till later tonight. Oh. I do my show, and then I go to the gym after that and torture myself for an hour. Wow, so. that's quite the ritual. Good for you. All right, I won't keep you then. So, right. uh, so uh, I'm guessing you can't uh, wait to see uh, the combination North and South Korean hockey team. Uh, th- this guy, you know what? Every story has a good and a bad. Every story has a plus and a minus. And it's obviously lovely and optimism generating and all those kind of things to think that the North Koreans and the South Koreans are going to be able to work together and march together and hold hands together and all these kind of lovely things that really are the, well, well it's better than having, anyway, it's better than having missiles flying over your head. Put true. it that way. This is absolutely true. And, and in utopia world, this is what the Olympics are supposed to be about. Yes. They're about world peace. And yes. you know what they at the beginning, when they open the Olympics, what do they say every year? Every four years, we have the youth of the world come together and play in peace and harmony and inject steroids. No, they leave that part out. Um, but <laughs> and cheat all, to win. Yeah. But it's all supposedly supposed to yeah. be, again, in utopia, yeah. a beautiful chance to leave politics aside mm. and just have a sporting competition where you compete against the best in the world. That's what it's supposed to be about. And so by that standard, having the two Koreas come in together is a wonderful thing. How can you be down on the idea that even if it's only for two weeks, 
they're not going to be flexing their muscles at each other. And maybe at the DMZ, the two sides can pull up a TV and watch together instead of pointing guns at each other. That would but be it, but it, it didn't work in 2000 in Sydney, so why would it work now? I mean, you know, they're still shooting missiles over uh, their heads. Well, okay, so you've got to, first of all, somehow think that if this really is a sign that utopia is upon us, that Kim Jong-un is taking these Olympics, and this has really changed his entire worldview, and he now wants to embrace the people that otherwise he wants to take over, and that he has now become a soft-hearted, kind, benevolent dictator who is going to retire to his summer home and just, you know, watch his old DVDs of American movies for the rest of his life. I don't believe that. I don't know what exactly is the thought process here, but I don't believe that. But here's where there have been some people who have been critical of some of the South Koreans for their feeling on this, that this is not really what they want. Because people are saying, well, come on, you South Koreans, you're the ones who are at the business end of the missiles that are pointed at. You should really welcome this. Mm. So if we had been having a military showdown with the United States, let's say, and we were hosting the Olympics in Calgary, the Winter Olympics in Calgary. And we decided that we were now going to have one North American team, that we and the states were going to get together and hug each other and sing kumbaya. Yeah, but we're not at war. No, but I think if this had been the case, if yeah. we had been yeah. in that position, yeah. I think a couple things. First of all, it would, it's not just, I don't think, it really is not all that easy just to, to do this. And the second thing, the South Koreans, and I spent a summer there, I worked there for a summer, they are incredibly proud of their country and of their flag. And to have the Olympics in their country where they don't get to march in with their flag. Yeah, it's like it's North Korea stealing the show here. And that's what and, I'm and saying. And here, here's, here's a perfect quote. North Korea was all about firing missiles last year, but suddenly they want to come to South Korea for the Olympics. Who gets to decide that? said a 24-year-old translator from Reuters. I mean, you know, you can understand their point. You can. And again, if we had the Olympics here, and now all the Canadians weren't going to march in with the Maple Leaf, which we're very proud of, we're now marching in with a flag that has a picture of the North American continent, I can see how there is some reservations, Some they're a little put off in some ways by this, especially... To go back to the first point, when you get, I don't see that this is a sign that Kim Jong-un has truly changed his thinking or his political aspirations or his militaristic aspirations. No, he just wants to be a part of the party. Yeah, if you believe that this really was a change that was bringing safety and security to your country, that the wingnut next door was not actually aspiring to take you over, then I would say, yeah, bring it. Let's let's have this. But I think a lot of people, yeah. especially in South Korea, are saying, yeah, he wants to so what somehow if, inject himself into this story. So what if South Korea would have said, no, you're not coming. You're out. You sit on the sidelines and watch the feeds that you can get in through your crappy TV. You uh, you're, you're, So, I mean, would that have been better off? I mean, by at least drawing a line in the sand, considering they were at Sydney and such? I mean, this isn't the first time this, he's tried to play this game. I don't know what the answer to that question would be. I don't know if they wanted to take a chance that, to antagonize him because they... Uh, then, he's lobbing, then he's lobbing missiles over the games every couple of days. I don't know if he's lobbing missiles over the games, but certainly the threat exists. And do you really want to be carrying on an Olympics 
where you've antagonized the guy next door who already is a loose cannon, and now you don't know. There's that uncertainty. Good point, Scott. Rather, and think, think, of the, think of the savings in the cost of security now that they're knowing that they're coming as opposed to the opposite. Well, Scott, tr- maybe... But if you were South Korea, are you now saying, hey, you know what, now that Kim is happier, let's cancel security. I mean, they're not doing that. They're, they're still, the security is going to stay the same. It may be that the sense is there's a little less tension as opposed yeah. to before where everyone every day is constantly looking up at the sky wondering if today's the day that the missile is launched. I hear you. Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist for your Hamilton spec. Uh, you want to plug the show tonight real quick? Who you got on? Uh, who do we have tonight? We have, uh, we are going to, oh, you know what? I'll tell you, there's a sad story coming on. Have you ever heard, have you heard about this guy in Hamilton who goes and feeds men, downtown homeless mm-hmm. guys, and gives them clothes and everything? Mm-hmm. Terrible story about what happened to him yesterday. He's trying to do the best thing possible and help all these people. Stick around, come in tonight to hear what someone did to him. It is, uh, it will make you upset, I assure you. Also, we will be talking about, maybe about Amazon about distracted driving, because if you do that now, Scott, yep. don't plan on driving at all. Yep. You are going to be walking to work if you decide to just drive while you're texting. Yep. And TV theme show, TV theme song, name that tune, so people should call in for that. Right. Got a great prize tonight. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show tonight on CHML Sports Columnist for your Hamilton spec. Thank you, Scott, as always. Much appreciated. Anytime, sir. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.